Dear Father, I ask, Father, that you'd bring these unique and trying times to their proper conclusion and to do it soon, Father. It's been months now and we know that from an eternal point of view, this is nothing. It's just a blink of the eye. But Father, it is, it is something we are enduring presently, so we feel it every day. And it has a drag, a weight on us as we wonder about the future and as we remember the things we miss that have been taken from us for a time. And I ask, Father, that you would bring that to a proper conclusion soon. Uh, we trust your timing, we trust your purposes, but we also know you tell us in your word that we should put before you our requests and that you are eager to hear from us in that respect. So we collectively, Father, pray that our life would return to the things that we miss, our church gatherings, our family gatherings, opportunities to enjoy time away and vacation or travel or things, Father, that we used to take for granted but now are so hard to find. We ask, Lord, for those things to return. And perhaps most of all, Father, we ask for health for the recovery of those who are sick, for the protection among those who are well so that they will not become sick. And we ask, Father, that you would bind the body together in spirit, in support of one another during these times, caring for the needs of those who are sick and lifting up those who have worry or fear. And Father, we look for these things to change in your timing because we know, Father, you are at work in the world through these things for great good, and we are studying that now in the book of Matthew, understanding how it is that terrible events can lead to such wonderful outcomes. Just as a woman enjoys the birth of her child only after a period of pain in delivery, we know, Lord, you've used that same analogy to explain to us what will come. And so, Father, we ask that the pains would be short and that the joy would come soon. Lord, help us understand these things better as we go back into the text this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today is a day I've alluded to for several weeks as we've gone into Matthew 24. This is a day in which we move into the climactic section of the Olivet Discourse. And the topic we're gonna eventually get to today as we move into this new section is all about having eyes for eternity. Before we get into that, though, this, let's just get our bearings again on where we are in this text. Uh, we're in the middle of a discourse that Jesus delivered uh, to his disciples about 36 hours before he died. He's seated on the Mount of Olives. That's why we call this the Olivet Discourse. And he's explaining how future events of the end times will play out in response to questions that he was asked by his disciples. Now, altogether, in this uh, discourse, Jesus has explained four things to these men. He's explained to them how the temple destruction will take place and what the signs would be when it was coming. He's explained the signs of his own return and he's explained the signs that would end this age. And then he added that additional topic of what are not things that will be considered signs just so that we don't get confused by the wrong things. Now, the disciples asked those questions in a somewhat random order, just whatever popped into their heads. But as you know, Jesus reordered the answers because he had a particular reason for saying what he said in the way that he said it. And as it turns out, if you look at what we've studied so far in this chapter, Jesus reordered their questions in chronological order. That is, he gave answers to these questions in the order that these signs would appear when they start to happen. First, he says, not everything that happens to you 
that is bad is a sign. So he puts that out of the way first. Secondly, he begins to describe how the end of the age will start to happen and what the earliest signs will be that you're getting near the end of the age. That'll happen over a period of centuries. And then he moved to talking about his second coming and the signs that would immediately precede his return and we know those signs only happen in the last seven years of this age. So he moves from general things you don't worry about to the earliest signs that were near the end to the specific things that come at the very end. And then as you know in Luke's gospel, he inserts the conversation about the temple's destruction as a kind of sidebar in the middle of all of that. Now last week, we completed Jesus' final answer to the final question of what are the signs of his second coming. But there is some unfinished business there for us that we need to start with this morning. As we do that, we'll move into the new topic after that. And what is the unfinished business? Well, Jesus gives this fascinating footnote, a new sign, an overarching final sign that starts and finishes the whole sequence of end times events. In a way, it's the one sign you need to know, even if you don't know any of the other ones. And it starts in verse 32. He says in Matthew 24, 32, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, throughout this discourse, Jesus has been giving us signs that each announce some certain event, the end of the age, or the destruction of the temple, or his return. And at the very end now, he sums up everything he's just discussed by giving us one more sign, a major sign that he says will tell us when the end times are about to begin. And then he adds that promise to assure us that these events will in fact complete just as he has promised. Let's start with that first sign, this new sign that he gives us. He says that it will be the sign of the parable of the fig tree. Now what he describes here is a fig tree coming out of its dormant phase after the winter. You know, if you look at a tree that's dormant in winter, a deciduous tree that loses its leaves, you know, it it looks dead. In fact, in, in some cases, a tree will die over the winter, and you can't tell which ones are dead or which ones are still alive. Not until you see leaves emerging in the spring. So it can look dead, but not actually be dead. And when the leaves show up, that's when you know that not only is the tree still alive, but you also know summer is near. You know that it won't be long before the tree is fully leafed out, and then there's going to be fruit waiting for you on the branches. And Jesus uses this parable to give us an indication of how to understand the earliest indications we'll have that there is an end times sequence about to begin. And it comes from understanding why he used a fig tree. You know, he could have used any tree. But he chose a fig tree because in the Bible, a fig tree is a picture of Israel. A fig tree is a a clock of Israel for, for the sake of this parable. You know, if you had no idea what month it was, let's say you're completely oblivious to the time or the, the time of year that you're in, you could at least know that summer was near by watching the leaves of a fig tree. When the fig tree produces leaves, you know summer's right around the corner. And in the same way, the fig tree representing Israel tells us that if you watch Israel 
Israel is a clock to tell the world when the end times are coming. He is saying this, for a time in its history, Israel appeared lifeless, much like a tree that was dormant in the winter. If you looked at what the state of Israel was in the world over the last many centuries and even millennia, going back to AD 70, you'd be hard pressed to think that Israel was even in existence. There were Jewish people, yes, but the nation wasn't in existence. It wasn't in the land and it saw no prospect of returning. So for all intents and purposes, you could say Israel was dead. But then, at a point in the last century, Israel came back to life, so to speak, and Jesus said it's like a fig tree showing its leaves again. And in that way you can know the end times are approaching. In effect, this is what Jesus is saying. Israel, the nation of Israel, its reemergence on the world scene is the first sign to us that the end is coming. And I'm saying it's the first sign because the reemergence of Israel didn't begin in 1948 with the formation of the modern state of Israel. The establishment of the nation came as a result of years of work of the Zionist Congress and Zionists generally that goes all the way back into the late 1800s and the first Zionist Congress that met at that time. And so the Zionist movement was all about Jews around the world saying it's time for there to be an Israel on the earth again. We deserve our own nation somewhere in the land. That started in the 19th century, it came into the 20th century, and it culminated in 1948 with Israel's declaration of independence. Truly, Israel was back from the dead. And Jesus, in this parable, connects the nation of Israel's reemergence with the end times, telling us that is the key event. And then he goes on to say, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, if you've studied this area of scripture, eschatology in general, and certainly if you've studied the events that are depicted here in Matthew 24, then you've come on this verse before, I know, and you are probably aware that there is considerable debate and confusion within the church, and I might add misinterpretation over what Jesus means here. One of the common interpretations you'll come across of this verse it says that uh, once Israel became a nation, once the fig tree sprouted its leaves, so to speak, then the end times would play out within the time span of one generation. That Jesus was saying, these things will be finished within one generation. But friends, it's been over 100 years since uh, Zionism began. It's been over uh, 80 years since Israel became a nation. And that would be far too long if we were to call that a generation. So once enough time had passed, it rendered that interpretation incorrect. So then a second interpretation emerged, which said that Jesus was speaking of not the generation that saw Israel show up, but the generation that will see Jesus show up. That is, the, the people who live through tribulation. So their view of this statement is that once tribulation begins, it will conclude before a generation has passed away. But friends, that's a pointless statement. I mean, Daniel already told us tribulation's only seven years long. We've known that for 600 years before Jesus spoke these words. And so there's no reason for Jesus to give this promise. It's redundant. He's just repeating Daniel's timeline. And why would he use the, the term generation then if it's only a seven-year period anyway? No, that's not the right interpretation either. And there are two keys in what Jesus says. 
that lead us to finding the correct interpretation. The first key is this, Jesus said all these things. You notice that? He says all these things would come to pass before uh, a generation went away. Not just some of the things, not just the things of tribulation, for example. That would rule out the second interpretation. He's saying this, everything from the start of the fig tree blooming until the return of Christ, all these things, and that spans at least a couple hundred years or almost uh, certainly over a hundred years so far, and we have obviously more time yet to go. So all of those things, Jesus says, will happen within the span of a generation. And then secondly, you notice Jesus says this generation, not a generation. He's speaking about some specific sense of a generation. He's not referring to a single human generation of say 40 years or whatever number you want to use. What he's talking here about is something related to the fig tree. The fig tree is this generation. That's why he uses that specific term. And here's what he means. You get the answer by understanding what the word generation in Greek really says. In verse 34, when he says this generation, he's, he's saying the word in Greek can mean a family or a kind or a tribe. And by the context, that's how you need to understand the word. He was speaking of the entire nation as the new generation of Israel not just a birth generation, but he's saying the reemergence of a new Israel on the world stage, this new generation of Israel in the land, that will not pass away until all these things have come to pass. That is, you will not see Israel cast out of its land again. You will not see Israel cease to exist again as has happened in the past. No, once you see Israel come back on the world stage, that is your sign that we're moving promptly to the end. That in fact the reason God allowed Israel to come back in that form was so that he could move into the end times events. So you can be sure of this, when you see Israel return, everything else Jesus said in fact will happen. My words will not pass away. He says, look the heavens and the earth are gonna pass away, that's part of the events of the end times but what I'm telling you is not going to cease to be true. I want you to think about that for a moment. You know, you, you look around the world that we live in today, the, the world does this, of course, all the time. They look at the unshakable nature of the earth. They look at the vast, immeasurable universe that surrounds us, and Jesus says, eh, here today, gone tomorrow. <laughs> and yet at the same time, the simple words printed on that page you have in front of you right now in which Jesus tells us of these things, he says those words are more permanent than anything you see in your creation. I want you to remember that. Next time you gaze up at some huge mountain or across some immense expanse of water in the oceans or you look at the countless stars in the sky, I want you to remember that those things are temporary. Now if those things leave you in awe now, I want you to imagine how you'll feel if you were there when they disappear in a blink of an eye like we've already studied. That's how the world's gonna experience the judgments that are coming. They will find that everything they've trusted in, even the most solid, immovable things of the existence they've always known, when those things are gone, and then out of that darkness comes the word of God, Jesus himself, they're finally, and unfortunately too lately, going to find out what is true what is permanent, what is trustworthy, and what is not. Never forget, 
that what is worthy of your dependence and trust is the word of God, and what is not is everything else. Everything, everyone, everything. In times when your world is being shaken and peace is being taken from you, much like some of you may be experiencing now, and when you feel like you're losing control or the world's losing control, that is an excellent time to remember verse 35. The things of the world that you trust in for security or stability only have the appearance of such certainty. A stable job or a comfortable house or your good health or a faithful spouse or your secure retirement plan or even a civil society, those things might appear certain and sure until they aren't. And then you wonder, well, where will I find security in the world? If those things are not secure for me, well, what is secure for you? And the answer you find in the Bible when you bring that question to Jesus is this. Security and certainty is never found in this world because the world itself is passing away, as is the cosmos around it. And when you see the signs then that tell you that the end of the age is upon us, Friends, that is the worst possible time to double down on your security in this world. In fact, James, in his letter, he scolds the church at one point for having that attitude. He says it this way in James 5, 1. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Let me pause there. He's talking not just about riches uh, specifically. He's using that as an example. He's talking about people who have trusted in what they can gain out of this world. So if you're not one who's given to greed or pursuit of riches, that's fine, that's good, but you're probably substituting something else if you're depending on this world in any way. Substitute that thing in this sentence and he's talking to you about what you're trusting in that you shouldn't be. And then he says this, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Now think about the irony of that statement. It is like someone rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, as someone once said. It's the idea that you are oblivious to the larger set of circumstances in your world and you are myopically thinking that the little thing you have control over is your safety and security. And it is a folly. And no more so than for a Christian, because a Christian, above all others in this world, knows these things. You know from your Bible that the world is supposed to end, at least in some way, someday. You understand your life is temporary, obviously. And James says, it is a sign of biblical ignorance when you live in ways that witness to a trust in this world rather than in a trust in what God has said is in his word. And in Matthew, Jesus is telling us, look for these signs, that's why he gave us what he gave us, to recognize them. And then he added, as we just read, when you see them, know that I am near. I'm, I'm right at the door. You know, you can feel his presence even before you can see it. And he says the first and foremost sign that tells us that this end is coming is 
The time you see Israel regathered. Now you and I, most of the people listening to me right now, we probably were born after 1948, most of us. And as a result, we take for granted a nation of Israel on the earth no more or no less than we take for granted the United States for that matter. But it wasn't always that way. For hundreds of years, for almost 2,000 years, no one gave a minute's thought to Israel being a nation other than perhaps the Jewish people. And then suddenly it was there, almost overnight, out of nothing. And Jesus says, that's not by chance, that's not just some geopolitical quirk, that's a miracle. And it's a miracle God ordained as a sign. So you can be sure of this, the world will pass away because Jesus said it will pass away and his words will not pass away. And this brings us to a fifth truth, a fifth reason why we study prophecy. You know, I've been giving you these reasons throughout the course of what we've done in this chapter. And the fifth reason you study prophecy is this. It changes the way you live and serve Jesus. You know, when I was growing up, my parents uh, would leave me and my siblings at home sometimes in the evening when, we, when they would go out for dinner. And I'm, I'm sure, like most parents, you know, we do this when our kids are old enough to be left alone. But you're not quite sure you can trust them. So my parents would issue these instructions to us about what they expected us to do and some warnings about what would happen if we didn't uh, before they left. You know, things like, you know, make sure you do your homework and clean the kitchen and be ready for bed and so on. Don't fight or whatever. But you know how that works, right? As soon as you see the car driving down the street, you immediately forget all of those instructions, you ignore them, and you just start doing whatever you please, at least for a time. But then as the night progresses, you know, your thoughts begin to turn inevitably to the fact that they're gonna eventually come back and you don't wanna be caught by surprise when that happens because if they show up finding you doing the wrong things, well, that's not gonna go well. So as the night goes on, you eventually reach a point where your anticipation of their return leads you to start doing the right things. You eventually get around to your homework. You eventually clean up the kitchen and so on. And you do that because you know when they walk in, they don't necessarily see the whole thing, they just see where you end. They understand what they find when they get there. As long as that looks good, you know, so much the better. Now, it obviously would have been better to have done it good from the very beginning, right? But at least it's better to do it at all than to never have done it. In a sense, friends, that's what study of prophecy is meant to do for the believer who endeavors to learn it properly and to live it out accordingly. And what is that? It's to motivate you to be ready. The world has already seen sign after sign that Jesus gave us in this discourse announcing the end of the age is upon us. But let's say for argument's sake you've never read this. You didn't know that earthquakes and famines and plagues and world wars are signs. Jesus says it doesn't matter because you only need to know one sign. One sign is enough in this case. If you understand what Israel means and the reemergence of Israel on the world stage, as he said, you just need to look at the fig tree and when you see the leaves, you know summer is near, you know fruit is on its way and in that same sense, seeing Israel today tells us that the clock is ticking. So you should hear it this way. You are like a child that your father has put on notice. I'm coming back soon. You need to do your homework. You need to take care of the, of the chores. You need to be ready for my return. And in my experience, those who study prophecy in the right heart think carefully about what they're learning and they prepare properly for that return by living 
obediently in the meantime. It's the same feeling you get as a child sitting at the kitchen table doing whatever you care to while your parents are gone and you look up at the clock and you realize, oh my gosh, it's nine o'clock. They're gonna be back any minute. And at that moment, you rush around the house, cleaning it up, doing what you're supposed to, brushing your teeth, jumping in bed, hoping you get it done before they show up. Again, it's better if you do it from the beginning. But like most of us, that's not how life goes. We tend to get more serious about our faith as we think more carefully about what it means and as we draw closer to the day we meet Jesus. And because you do not want to be found lacking when he arrives, and I should add, because you know how to read a clock, you should be ready. And that's the main reason, and maybe the best reason of all to study prophecy. It leads to a sense of urgency and to a healthy fear of the Lord which has its ultimate good purpose in causing us to obey Christ more fervently and more consistently. And all of that is made possible because you know how to read a clock, or as it is in this case, the signs that Jesus has given us. That's why you're studying this chapter with me. Now we're gonna come back to this idea of being ready a little later in this study, because Jesus comes back to it himself with another parable, but before we do that, but that's not for today, let's move on, because we need to get to the end of the signs he's given us here. We're at the end now, but if you remember from last week, there were a couple of verses I skipped in the text last week, back in chapter 24 of Matthew. I didn't read verses 27 and 28. Today we're gonna cover them as by way of transition into this next section of the discourse and into an entirely new topic, the one I've been alluding to, the one that will give us even better eyes for eternity. Let's go back for a minute. Verse 27, Jesus said, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, at this moment, he was describing his signs before his coming and and shortly before as he returns, what would it be like on earth to see that? He says it starts with his bright appearance in this otherwise pitch black universe and it comes like lightning. Now lightning is a fiercely bright, intense and quick light. In fact, you could say it's lightning quick as we like to say. So Jesus's return is not gonna be like some slow descent of a helicopter onto a helipad somewhere. Jesus is gonna flash like lightning across the sky. And you notice it comes in a certain direction, from east to west, and that reflects his movements at his second coming. If you were a part of the Revelation study we did recently, then you learned with me that Jesus' first appearance on earth at his second coming is at a place called Batra in southern Jordan today, which is southeast of Jerusalem. He moves from that location to Jerusalem to finish his second coming. It'll be like lightning, and it'll come from the west then, or from the east rather, to the west. And as he moves, he says here that he leaves behind corpses. Because as he returns, he is not only saving some, but he is destroying many. And like all signs in this discourse, what he's describing here with respect to lightning and corpses and so on, is from a perspective of someone on the earth. And the Bible says, in fact, there are gonna be three principal groups of people involved in witnessing the return of Christ. And they will all experience him in slightly different ways or in greatly different ways. First, there are gonna be those on earth who have believed in Jesus at some point during the tribulation and they are still alive, they've not died. And as they see the moment that I just described happening, they're gonna be joyful, obviously. 
They're going to meet their Lord's return with joy because he's coming to save them. And then there'll be another group on the earth that experiences his return from a very different point of view. Unbelievers who are on the earth and view Jesus' return, we were told earlier, they see it as an unmitigated disaster. They are mourning his return because they know it means judgment for them. There's a little passage in Paul's writing uh, to the church in Thessalonica, in 2 Thessalonians, in which he refers to both of these groups at the second coming of Christ and their respective responses. Let me just read you that passage. It's in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse six, it says, for after all, it is only just for God to repay and afflict those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Notice in that passage I just read, Paul mentioned that when the Lord's revealed from heaven, he comes bringing retribution to those who are unsaved. He's talking about those who do not know God, he says, those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ and who have persecuted believers. Throughout the history of the church, they persecuted us. And now, he says, it'll be their turn to see that retribution. They'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction, he says. But back in Matthew 24, Jesus addressed the fate of this group in verse 28 by saying that their bodies would be consumed by vultures, their corpses would be where the vultures would go. And in Revelation 19, we're given the details of how God uses birds to dispose of the bodies of these unbelievers who he comes back for. In Revelation 19, 17, it says, John writes, I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves and small and great. So Jesus says that those who see him when he returns who are not his will mourn, they will deal out, he will deal out retribution, they will die, they'll be in damnation after that and their bodies will be consumed by vultures, by birds. But Paul also mentioned in that passage I read from 2 Thessalonians chapter one that Jesus will be marveled at by the believers who are waiting for him on earth. That's the second group. And they who have believed in the gospel, whether Jew or Gentile, will watch in amazement as their Lord comes to them in glory. We learned earlier in Matthew 24 that at that same moment, God is gonna send out his angels to gather up these elect, these believers, from all the corners of the earth, wherever they still may be at that time, and bring them all to Jerusalem physically by means of an angel Uber, whatever. And this great assembling of believers takes place so that they're all present to enter into the kingdom and to celebrate it with Jesus in the inaugural feast of the kingdom in Jerusalem. So we have all unbelievers made corpses at the coming of Christ, and we have all believers being gathered together by angels for a, a feast to start the kingdom in Jerusalem. But I told you there's three groups, right? Three groups involved in the return of Christ. But the third group does not experience any of the things I just described from the perspective of earth. This third group participates in the return 
of Christ. This third group experiences it from heaven, coming down with Jesus. And I told you about this earlier, this group earlier in our study, a, a week or two ago when I read out of Revelation 19 how the church saints, the bride of Christ, as we are called in Revelation 19, is with Jesus in the heavenly throne room right before his return, and then as he returns, we follow him to the earth. You know, Paul also says this in his way. 1 Thessalonians 3.13, Paul says, he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So Paul says that the coming of the Lord Jesus happens with all saints his saints, meaning the whole church is with him when he returns. Now that just begs a question, doesn't it? How does the church move from earth, where we are now, to heaven, so that we're there with Jesus when he comes back at his second coming? Well, you get part of your answer just in the normal by and by of earthly life, because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that when a believer dies today, The body goes in the grave, but the spirit, the part of us that is eternal, goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. So every time a believer dies, they move to that heavenly throne room and they're there waiting for the second coming of Christ. And that's how most of us will get there. But Revelation 19 told us that in that moment, right before Jesus' return, the bride of Christ has, quote, been made ready, it says. And that the marriage of the bride to the lamb is now able to happen, and the bride can't marry the groom until the whole bride is present. So in other words, when it says the bride has been made ready in Revelation 19, it's saying the entire body of Christ is there. No one's missing. There's not still some church member, some believer in the church on the earth at that moment. We're all in heaven because the bride is full, complete, and ready to be married to her groom, to Jesus. So the question remains, when and how does the entire church now, not just those who've already died, but both dead and living, how do we all end up together in the same place, in the heavenly realm, at the same moment in preparation for Jesus' second coming? You know, that's a question that the disciples never thought to ask Jesus because I'm pretty sure that's a scenario that they had never even considered. And in fact, It's an event that's only whispered about in the Old Testament, at least in the sense that it's shown in the Old Testament through pictures, but it's not uh, explicitly described. It turns out, though, that this is the most important question that the disciples could have asked, and had they known to ask it, it would have given them the most important answer in everything that Jesus has talked about in this chapter. But because they didn't understand, because they didn't even know, Jesus brings them into this discussion on his own now at this point in verse 36. And this brings us into what will be the most important thing that any Christian should know about the end times, more important than anything else we've ever covered so far. Let's get into that today. It's gonna take us some time to get through it today and in the weeks to come, but we begin it now. Verse 36, Jesus says, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand 
until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. All right, now, as I take us, take us into this new topic, I want to acknowledge up front in verse 36 that it doesn't sound like we've done something new here. It almost sounds like a continuation. You have to pay close attention to an overlooked transition phrase when Jesus says, but of that day. That phrase would seem to suggest at first that he's talking about a day, that day, some day he's already described earlier in this text, and so you begin to try to match it to something he's already said. Which of the earlier things is he talking about? But you're gonna find as you look at the context now of what Jesus says, that he is not talking about something that he's previously addressed. No, this is something entirely new. It's a new day, a different day, nothing he's ever talked about yet before. He's talking about it in this sense. That day is a specific and special day no one's heard about before. How do I know that that's what he's doing here? Well, because of what he says next, what, do we, what we see at the end of chapter 24, verse 36, that verse, but also what he says in the verses that follow. Jesus says, this is a day that has no signs. You notice that? This is a day that has no signs whatsoever. It is completely lacking in advance notice. No one will know it's coming. In fact, not even Jesus himself could tell you when this day is coming. Now I'm gonna address later in this teaching in future weeks why it is that Jesus himself does not know this information. But for now, I just want you to consider the implications of that truth. He's saying this is an event, an event in God's plan, an event of the end times, a, a day as he calls it, which has absolutely no advanced warning. And as such, it is a complete departure from everything else we just studied. It is a day that is very different than anything he's just described in this discourse because everything else he's talked about to this point, whether the temple destruction or the end of the age or his second coming, every one of those events had numerous signs, extensive signs. You could see it coming from a mile away if you knew what to look for. But he says, of that day, meaning some other time, no one knows. You can't know. It's unknowable. In fact, it's so unknowable, I couldn't even tell you, Jesus says. So what is this day that Jesus wants his disciples to be aware of, at least to know that it exists, and at the same time, you can't know when it's gonna happen. You have no reason to know it's around the corner. He calls this day the coming of the Lord. And obviously that phrase would suggest to us something of the second coming again, right? It takes us back to that idea and to the start of the kingdom. But as I just said, we know this is not that day. Why? Because the second coming of the Lord has so many signs you can't count them all. In fact, we know exactly when it's gonna happen, at least in a sense. When the tribulation begins, you know that his return is exactly seven years away. That is the complete opposite of what he just said about this day that's coming, this mysterious day. The coming of the Lord then must be something different than the second coming. Yes, the words are similar, but the context makes clear they're not the same at all. In fact, we're gonna study this unique day in three parts as Jesus teaches it here and elsewhere in the New Testament. First, we're gonna learn the circumstances of this special day. Secondly, we're gonna learn the details of the day itself, that is, uh, who's it for, how it unfolds, what's happening. And then thirdly, we're gonna learn the purpose of this day, why it exists at all. I haven't given it a name yet, we'll do that in time, But for now, let's just start with what we know from what we're reading, 
Verse 37, the circumstances. We'll start in there as Jesus gives them to us. He says, in these circumstances, he says, you can use the days of Noah as your reference point. Well, obviously, the days of Noah is a reference back to the time shortly before God flooded the earth with water some 4,500 years ago. And what do we know about those days from Scripture? Well, Jesus gives us a little synopsis of it here. He says it was a time when life felt normal to the world, and there was no sense at that time of any kind of impending doom. People, he says, were eating. Now, what he means by that is that they were planting, they were harvesting, uh, that in other words, the normal routines of life were going on and no one expected that to be interrupted. Secondly, he says they were drinking. Now, he's referring here to alcoholic drinking, so what he's referring to here is the drink of a party or a festival, or a feast, or any occasion of celebration in daily life, which is to say there was no panic. There was no worry. You know, you typically don't hold parties when everybody's thinking about the end of the world. But it also implies debauchery and excess and a life of of living it up, so to speak, which is a way of saying a world unafraid of judgment, unafraid of God. And then finally, Jesus says, marriages were happening, And friends, marriage is an inherently optimistic choice. People marry because they're looking forward to the future. They're looking forward to making a life together, to uh, making a family together, having a home together, and so on. So if you have a world that is eating, drinking, and marrying, what you're saying is this is a world that has an expectation that everything that they know now is gonna continue and there's nothing around the corner to change it. But in Noah's day, we know those impressions were very wrong because the Lord had already determined that he was gonna flood the world after a period of waiting. If you go back to the story of the flood in Genesis six, you find God explaining to Noah at a point in that chapter that he was gonna bring a flood on the earth after 120 years of waiting. Why did he wait so long? Because it was in those 120 years that God would direct Noah to build an ark, a boat big enough to save himself and his family and the animals of the earth. So while the world was living it up for 120 years, assuming that the future was bright, the reality was that their world was about to come crashing down suddenly. And in verse 39, Jesus says, the world simply did not understand that a flood was coming to take them away, even though they could see Noah building a giant ark. And so he says, the circumstances of this mysterious coming of the Lord day will be like the day of Noah in two principal ways. First, there will be a complete lack of awareness by the unbelievers of that day that a reckoning is about to happen. And then secondly, for the people of God, those who have been informed by God about these events, they will be preparing to escape the coming judgment because they've been put on notice. And already we see Jesus is talking here about a very different set of circumstances than his second coming. Because as I said earlier, that's a completely opposite scenario to the second coming of Jesus. You know, you learned earlier in this chapter that the second coming of Jesus is announced through a time of tribulation in which the world is rocked by signs and life is anything but normal for the world during that time. I mean, Revelation tells us that people will not, well, they will not be eating, drinking, and marrying during that time. On the contrary, their seas 
and fresh water will be turning to blood. Their mountains will be falling. Their islands will be sinking. People will be living in caves, we're told, by the end of it all. That, friends, is not the setting of the times of Noah. So when Jesus says that day will come in a set of circumstances similar to the days of Noah, he's talking about something very different than his second coming. He's talking about a day that will surprise the entire world, a day that has no warning signs. They couldn't know it, frankly. It's a very different day, and yet it still has the coming of the Lord associated with it, so it must be a type of return of the Lord that's different than the type we know at his second coming. And it includes a rescue. You notice that the Lord said that it would be like Noah in the sense that in the day that Noah entered into the ark, and then the world would start to understand what was going on. So there is going to be a a movement of the church, of God's people, a return of God to rescue his people from a coming judgment, much like Noah was rescued by God before the floodwaters came. Well, we're gonna get back to this Noah analogy next time we study, and then as we do, we'll move from the circumstances to part two of our study of this day to the to the way the day unfolds, to how it works, who's involved, and so on. And I wanna encourage you as we end this today to consider something about our own time in light of the analogy Jesus is using to Noah's time. And that is this, you can see clearly today from the signs we've already studied that we are living in a time that is near the end. You're on notice, the fig tree has blossomed, The world wars have started. There's no denying it. And so the world being in upheaval around us right now, what you can see every day on the news, what you're watching perhaps in your own streets, if you're watching that right now and you're wondering, when will life get back to normal? Well, according to what Jesus just said, let me assure you, it will. There is normal coming again, maybe a new normal, maybe not exactly the same normal, but we will get back to a point soon enough when people are eating, drinking, marrying and so on, which is to say, back to the routines that they know and enjoy, back to an optimism, back to an expectation of regular life again. The world is going to return to that attitude at some point. But friends, you're not the world. You are a believer on notice that normal is an illusion and that there are great and terrible things coming for the world. Maybe it starts tomorrow. Maybe it's 100 years away, but it's coming because Jesus said it is, and he said his words would come to pass. These, friends, are the days of Noah in that sense. So, friends, now is not the time to pretend that things will be normal or that what the world calls normal is normal. It is not a time of fear, and I'm not suggesting that we should do crazy things. What I'm saying is this. This is the time to prepare, spiritually speaking, for what is going to follow. This is a time to talk about the ark. You know, the Bible uses the, the ark of Noah as a picture of Jesus, and we'll cover more of this as we get deeper into this study, but it's enough for us to know right now that if we know the signs, and we know the rescue plan, and we know the days are short, then we have everything we know to help those around us be ready for that escape. And I hope you have that same sense of urgency, that obedient heart that says, my Father, my Lord, Jesus is coming back soon, And as a result, I need to be ready when he sees me. I want to be doing what he's called me to do. And the church, fundamentally, is here to rescue people out of this world, not to save the world we're in. 
I hope you have that heart and that attitude. I hope you're learning things here that will prompt that obedience in your heart because that's what church is all about. That's what the body of Christ is here for. Let me encourage you as we pray to take that mindset out of this study today. Father, watch over us in these days of Noah. Give us an appreciation that normal is not normal and that our world is passing away. But Father, preserve us from fear or from rash responses to this truth. Guide us, Father, in a godly response, a response that is both expectant and longing for the rescue that is coming. And at the same time, Father, wants to bring as many people with us as we can. So give us courage, Father, to speak truth to those who need to hear it in a love that will draw them to you. Help us, Father, not to invest in this world, storing up our riches in the last days. How silly it would be, Father, to store up things we leave behind. But Father, give us a sense of using each day to its ultimate purpose, to your glory and to the purpose of the kingdom. And I know, Father, that as you train us for that, you'll give us opportunity to use what we've learned. And I pray that we'll take those opportunities and bless us in the work that we do. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.